I mean, I'm sure Chris is your, he's your main squeeze, right? You just got a couple side pieces, but that doesn't mean I hear you. And that's the voice of real estate investor, David Green. And I'm Chris Weidman. And this is Won't Back Down presented by Bio Accelerator. David Green is a real estate investor. He is the host of the biggest podcast when it, in terms of real estate uh, called Bigger Pockets. He is a BJJ enthusiast. Um, he started all these new uh, different companies that he's uh, the CEO of um, that have to do with real estate that we get into. Um, I met him a few years ago because I started getting into real estate and I wanted to make my first uh, investment into that uh, into that world. And so I started uh, reading some books. And the first book I read was a David Green book. And I eventually, uh, you know, reached out to him on Instagram. We started talking and uh, he's helped me with a bunch of projects. And now I have a few different real estate investments that I've made. And uh, he was uh, definitely a big tool for me uh, in order to uh, garner the knowledge that I need in order to do that. Um, He's a great guy. He has a very inspiring story uh, from where he came and where he is now. And uh, just a very positive person to talk to, really understands the mindset that you need to have in order to be successful and all the pitfalls that uh, come along with that process and how to avoid them. So he, we really get into a lot of great things that I think could help people in no matter what kind of uh, uh, career you're in or what your, what your passions are. All that is coming next. But before we begin, I want to tell you about Won't Back Down's presenting sponsor, BioAccelerator. BioAccelerator is the world leader in stem cell therapy and regenerative medical research. Through the use of their powerful golden stem cells, they help patients heal from joint and orthopedic injuries, autoimmune disorders, spine and disc damage, and neurological trauma. I'm feeling amazing after going to BioAccelerator. I love them out there. My body feels almost brand new, um, especially things that I got injected uh, that were hurting me for years just throughout my career that were just nagging and I thought they'd always be there. Uh, after getting the injections, those are gone. So I highly recommend you checking out BioAccelerator. Uh, thanks again to BioAccelerator for sponsoring Won't Back Down. And without further ado, here's my conversation with David Green. I felt like I was a side piece with you that I was at a wedding and I was talking to David Green on Instagram. Uh, Nick Lamagna was there, my boy, our boy, Nicky Knuckles. And I, I thought I was your one and only UFC fighter. And then all of a sudden, Aljamain Sterling's next to me and he's talking to you too. I'm like, David Green's cheating on me. The hell was that about? I, we probably <laughs> should have had that define the relationship moment before you had. I'm sorry, Chris, you had to find out like that. I'm sure that that didn't feel good. And uh, I don't know that if Aljo realizes <clears throat> Mike Chandler's also a fan of the Bigger Pockets podcast. Oh, no. um, there's a couple of you other folks. So my grand vision, this is what I was thinking I was going to do. <clears throat> the cat came out of the bag <clears throat> at that wedding with Aljo that I was going to be like Nick Fury. I was going to meet all of these people that were in your world and assemble them all, but not let you knew I did it. And then in one revealing moment, it was going to be the UFC Avengers that were going to take over the world investing in real estate. Um, and we were going to take down like the, the, the Thanos of inflation together. So that's plan still might happen, but sort of the surprise has already been taken out of it. Well, it looks like we got a solid team <coughs> being built um, and inflation is pretty strong. So I think we, we need to go to work. It's time. It's happening. 
right? Yeah. Like it's, it's upon us, whether we like it or not. Absolutely. Um, we've got to talk about the elephant in the room. The, you do jujitsu now. Last time I spoke to you, you didn't do jujitsu. I think my boy, Nicky Knuckles, Nick Lamagna was talking to you about it. I think he got you a couple of private lessons and he said, how did cool you get, guy. how did you get into jujitsu? All right. So the story of that is it starts with when I was a police officer, I was a defensive tactics instructor. So I was a use of force instructor. I was pretty deep into the world of teaching police officers how to use force, when to use force, when it's legal, and then basically the right way to go about doing it. Mm. Uh, and then I got out of being a cop and I didn't really have like that element of my life just went away and it all became being immersed in becoming a businessman and even a salesperson to a degree, very, very different than being an athlete and a police officer, which had been my identity for most of my life. So it was kind of missing and I always liked it. But as I, the further away I stayed from that world, the worse shape I slowly got into. And I was like, man, I cannot just show up. And, you know, I, I had a few private lessons and it was just exhausting trying to do that. So yeah. we interviewed Jocko Willink on our podcast. And of course, like jujitsu comes up anytime you're talking to Jocko. And my co-host, Brandon Turner, got sucked into committing to Jocko that he was going to do jujitsu. And that's not a commitment you get to make. And then not like, he's going to fly in a Navy SEAL in a helicopter in Hawaii and get that, have you pull you out of bed at 4.30 in the morning to go roll. Yeah. So Brandon started doing it. And then he got connected with the gym that was just, I mean, it's, it's probably typical in the jujitsu jiu community where you, some are really good. Like the one I go to now is awesome. Incredibly structured. You don't even roll with another person until you get a strike. They make you put your time in to, to, build up your, these building blocks, you don't get injured or you don't just hate it. Well, he gets thrown into one of those lion's dens where it's like, Oh, this big skinny Howley brand is like six foot five, 107 pounds. He's yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> they're just twisting them up like Gumby. Yeah. So yeah. I was showing him a little bit of the stuff we learned. Like, like he didn't even know a mount is bad. Like, don't let someone mount you. It was yeah. that bad. So in the middle of that, I realized Brandon, he started getting private lessons from a black belt that got his uh, belt under Huron and Henry Gracie in Southern California, Jerry Oliveira. And uh, I realized I can't let Brandon get better than me. So then I went and signed up at a gym close to me. And that was basically how I got into this world. I love it. Are you doing it pretty regularly right now? I or? try to. Like, I, I really want to. It, I'd say twice a week is like a good week, unfortunately. Yeah, it's probably been averaging about one and a half times a week for the last five months or so. That's the thing is we talk about it a lot because it's fascinating and I love it. I just, I like combat. I like sports. I like the the mixing of physical with mental at the same time. Like that's what makes it like the dopamine release comes from any time. That's what I loved about basketball and other sports. But I think it gives the impression that I'm better than I am because we talk about it so much, but it's really, <laughs> we're new. I've had a stripe for about like four weeks now. All right. Well, I'm not judging you. I just, it's just a matter of getting in there, being able to check your ego at a door, uh, knowing that you could get, you know, manhandled by another guy around your same size and age. And there's no excuses and there's no one to blame other than yourself. And uh, you, you have that, you know, fight first flight, you know, situation going on in the brain. Like, do I not do this anymore? This is ridiculous. I might get hurt, you know, and give yourself all these excuses. Or do you just say, you know what, I'm going to keep showing up. And the next thing, no, you're you know you getting some moves on the the guy who was beating you up at one point, and you start progressing, and then you fall in love. It really, I love jujitsu. Jujitsu is such a great sport for everybody. You know, it doesn't matter how big or small, uh, you know, male or female. Um, it is it, it it is meant for small people to be able to take out big people. 
And uh, that's what Hoist Gracie was showed, you know, in that first UFC, you know, just how, how dangerous it is. It doesn't matter how big these guys are. When you have one part of your body on one side of the arm and the other part of your body on the other, and you're thrusting your hips, the guy's arm is breaking no mm-hmm. matter how strong he is, you know. So it's, it's, it really is cool. And it's, it's a really humbling sport. And I respect anybody who gives it a shot, you know, because it's, it is humbling. No, I plan on, on, I, there's mo, it's like a, how do you describe it, man? It's like a bipolar experience. I will have one day where I'm like, this sucks. I suck at this. Why am I even going? I can't even get my hip to bend enough to get a triangle in. Like if I can't even bend the muscle, what am I doing here? I was exhausted the whole roll. And then I'll go back. Like the last class we just had, we all rolled with the instructors. Uh, and I went way longer before he tapped me out than everyone else. And he was actually like, that was really good. And now I'm flying high. Like, this is the best thing ever. I want to yeah. go all the time. And then I'll go for three days in a row and my body will be so tired. I, I can't get out of bed. Like, this is exhausting. So I think what what drew me to it and what will keep me in it is, if I'm just being frank, I've spent too much time in a world where I was the black belt and everybody looks up to me. They all want my approval everything I say is more than what they know, you know, and I needed to get myself in a world where I was not the top dog. It was not people coming to me. I had to feel what it felt like to have fear in my life again. And that there is no way to rush this. I cannot just use enough intensity to get good at jujitsu quick. You just have to go all the time Mm -hmm. and wait for things to click. So that was missing in my life. And now that I'm going, I recognize this is almost like the most important thing that I'm doing at all. Because when I leave there, I have a, a clarity of mind. I am way, I don't know if you get the same thing, but it's like, there's a calmness that's over me. Like the rest of the time I have an edge, like I'm just a lion that's always on the hunt. And when I leave jujitsu, I feel like a connection to other people. I don't feel it. Like I'm in an aggressive mindset. You got it all out on the mat and I can listen to people more. I can connect with people more. And I probably mm-hmm. am a lot more fun to be around, to be honest, after I go. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm, I'm miserable if I'm not getting my workouts in, you know, if I'm not getting some good jujitsu sessions in good striking sessions in, I am not the person I like to be. Uh, but like, it, it really does cross over into business too, though. Like you, when you started over, when you started your business, you know, you, you started as a cop, right. And then you got it into real estate yeah. You dove in a hundred percent, but all the hurdles that you had to deal with in the beginning, you know, probably you know, opportunities to give up and say, oh, let's do something else. You know, you just kept showing up and kept grinding and kept your confidence. And then you ended up, you know, you know, becoming a huge success story. Do you see that crossover? As far as that happening with jujitsu? Yeah. Like, like it, it's the same thing where, you know, it, it, so you're you're the man in what you do. When it comes to real yeah. estate, everybody's coming to you. You go to jujitsu now. You're back to that beginning, you know, stages of your business career. Almost, you know, it kind of crosses over, and now you have that opportunity. You know what the you know you knew what it took to get success in business, and it really is the same thing when it comes to <coughs> athletics too. The commitment. Yeah, that's a thousand percent correct. But there's something about it, the human psyche, that once we escape pain, like once you're not getting your yourself manhandled every day, you can hold your own. There's this temptation to like hit cruise control. When you're in pain, every human being will fight to get out of it by whatever means they're given. So if you're raised in an environment where someone says, look, we don't have a lot of money, you got to work your ass off and you got to save it and you got to do something, people will do that. If they're in an environment where they said, you don't have any money, you got to get out there and protest and make a difference and change laws so that money's redirected towards you, then that's what people are going to go do. Uh, but as soon as you get out of that, that's where you find out like where, where someone's heart's really at. Because 
there's certain human beings that get out of pain and they say, all right, now I got to push to get into like the best I could be. And then there's others that just phone it in. And that cycle like always continues. And what I've noticed is when I get out of pain and I feel like I'm at the top, which is comparatively speaking, I might be the top realtor in my office and I might be the top realtor in my state, then maybe in the company, there's different versions of the top, but it's always a difficult transition to leave the top and willingly go back down to the bottom and start over. It's like getting out of the the shower that's warm and into the freezing cold water. You don't want to do it. And there's all these doubts that pop up in your mind that say, you can't do it here. You did it there. And even if 20 times before I've gone through this same transition, like going in the police academy, I had all those same emotions. It was crazy. I didn't know how the military worked. And half the people in there were from the military. They understood this whole world I was getting into that I understand. And it was misery every day. But by the end of the police academy, I was one of the top recruits. You just you stick with it for long enough and you'll figure it out. I think that's where the hesitation comes from a lot of the time. Once a person has found success at a certain part of their life, that it's very difficult to get back in at the bottom. I'm, I'm probably speaking to someone who understand, <laughs> understands this better than anyone else, right? Because just within your own career, you've had lots of moments that were like that. But I would encourage everybody listening to recognize that if you spend too much time at the top, okay, you're comfortable in your marriage and you don't want to have kids because you don't want to shake it up. I'm not married. I have kids, so I can understand that. But uh, you, in your business, you're the man and everyone looks up to you at your job and you don't want to go get back in the gym where you know that you're out of shape and it's going to be difficult. I don't think many of us realize how much harder it is to get along with us when we only spend time in the areas that we're really good. We don't have as much patience for other people. We don't have as much of a heart for other people. We kind of get become narcissistic in a lot of ways and want to just stay in that environment. That's one of the things that jujitsu, like you said, it does not matter if I am wealthier than the guy I'm rolling with or what I did 10 years ago in my law enforcement career. He's 25 years old. He's in way better shape than me. He really wants to take out the bigger guy. And the only way I'm going to survive that, if I'm paying a lot of attention to what I'm being taught and I'm very focused in that moment. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, Yeah. I think anytime that you do, you kind of start over and you put yourself in another lane to fail. There's a risk there. You know, that's what I think holds a lot of people back is the, the opportunity to fail when you've already had the success, it's hard to put yourself yeah. back in that situation that you fought so hard to get out of. Um, I actually, at, at my church service this weekend, my, my, uh, my pastor was talking about, uh, I guess, a bunch of, you know, popular psychologists. They did this study and they, they gathered up like 50, uh, 50 people over 90 years old. And they asked them, what is like the one thing that you would do over again? And the majority of them said that they would have risked more. Hmm. And I thought that was interesting. I'm like, you know what? That's, that's it. And, I, and I'm, I'm definitely a risk taker. That's just natural. Uh, my wife is the opposite. So I was really happy she heard that service. I'm like, see, we got we to gotta start risking more. You got to go for it. You know, you got to put it out there, you know. How are you going to, you, you can't be successful, really, truly successful without risking a lot. Yeah. So why do we always assume that if we always see the bad side of risk, like what if I lose? Okay. What if I lose what I already have? And that's always in people's minds, but who says that is actually a bad thing to lose what you have and have to rebuild it again. Sometimes the best parts of ourselves that we love the most were forged during those periods of time where we lost everything we had and we had to rebuild it. Um, I think about somebody like, let's just take obviously injuries that happen and somebody has to rehab coming back from that. In a sense, if you get in the cage and you go fight, you are taking a lot of risks. Like you could have an injury that would stop you from being able to compete. But 
in another sense, the skills that you build, if you are injured and you have to rebuild that, the character that is formed will serve you in whatever the next season of your life would be, or in other relationships in a lot of other ways. And so obviously when you get to a certain point, I worry about risk all the time too, but I, I force myself to think about, you know, if I, if my biggest fear happens and I lose what I've got, what would I have built in getting it that would work in these other areas of my life? And when I look back and I think about how terrified I was to, to go join law enforcement, not knowing if I was even going to make it through the academy, more than half the people get washed out and they just, there's nothing they could do about it. They don't pass. Then leaving law enforcement, right? I had ascended to the top of the department. I got pretty much everything I wanted. Now I got to leave that and go be a salesperson where nothing's guaranteed. And there's a lot of risk associated with that. And then I became yeah. a good agent. Well, now I got to build a team and I have to trust that they're not going to screw everything up. There's a lot of risk there. So I, like you're constantly putting your chips in the middle of the table, but what you're getting back is are these experiences and this hardening of your character and your will and things that will benefit you in everything you do in life. And so that's one of the things I just, I have to tell myself all the time when that fear starts kicking in, like, what if you lose everything? Well, what I'll gain in the process will usually get me back much more than I could have ever lost. Yeah. I think, I think it also crosses over to, I think a good way for people to understand this is like public speaking, public speaking. I don't think is comfortable really for anybody. I think it's a, it's something that the people who do it more often constantly put themselves in that uncomfortable position, just a little bit more than the other people. And they got comfortable in that uncomfortable situation of being judged by everybody that they're in front of and maybe not sounding smart. And, you know, when you're talking to people that are potentially way smarter than you, you know, may know more than you, um, it's intimidating. But if you could raise up the confidence to to go out there and uh, put it all on the line, um, there's so much reward. Because I think anybody who's ever done public speaking, whether it didn't go great or, or it did, like you feel good afterwards. You conquered something inside you that was holding you back, like something, all those insecurities and, and doubt. That was telling you, oh, you shouldn't, you, you can't, you can't, you're not a good public speaker. You can't do that. You know, you conquered something inside of you. And with that, you grow, you know, you just become, uh, you know, a stronger and a better person. And then you like life more as a stronger, better person. Like that's kind of the secret to this whole thing is if you're willing to put yourself in there in a public speaking environment that you know, you're not good you will see all the ways that you're not good, where you stumbled over words. You know, like one of the things that I recognized when I first had to start speaking in front of big groups of people was how narcissistic it actually was that I was constantly worrying about how I would look to them because they're there to learn from me. So I, what I realized was the more I focus on what do they think of what I'm saying, the less I actually care about what I'm delivering to other people. I'm putting myself above them is what became clear when I started doing it. Mm. And when I started thinking like, no, I'm here to help give them this information that could change their life or entertain them or something that puts them above me, that the, the grip that fear had was significantly decreased. And then the next step I noticed was I want to get better at doing this so I can serve them better. If I can be a better speaker, hold their attention better, get my points in, make them laugh at the right time so that this is more digestible. I can have a bigger impact on their lives. And so it switched around from, oh my God, I'm so scared into, I want to be better at this so I can serve other people more. And that for me, that was kind of how I got over that fear is I kind of recognize this is something that would honor God if I could put myself in a situation where I'm nervous, but not think about me. And I don't think that's unique to public speaking. I think in, there's arguments to be made very similar to jujitsu. If you go yeah. roll with people better than you, it... In, <laughs> I don't know how I would describe it. I, I talk to my team about this all the time. I could tell you, here's what to go say. 
But if you're not going and holding open houses and you're not stumbling over your words with that person, I can say it all I want. It's like giving food to a person that's not hungry. Your instructor can tell you, this is how you escape a mount. And you can hear it and you can know it. And you in conversations with someone, you can say the right thing and it tricks you into thinking that you actually are aware of it until there's a person sitting on top of your chest and you can't breathe and you're not getting out of it, right? That creates this hunger that the next time the instructor says, this is what you do, you're like locked in and focused and you actually value that you're eating that food that they give you. So that's another thing that I've noticed about life in general is if I'm putting myself in situations where I will fail. It creates a hunger so that when I learn, I actually eat that food and I take it in versus when you're just always at the top, you're never hungry, you're always full. And so all the knowledge in the world could be offered to you, but you don't really have much use for it. Yeah. And a lot of people end up kind of when they're being taught something, they they kind of initially they want they they might give it a try once, you know. So if you tell a real, uh, you know, a realtor that this is, you know, a certain phrase that they should use when they, you know, introduce themselves to a client, you know, and and it doesn't go great the first time, in their opinion. Now it's just gone. They don't know yes. how to. They don't. They don't know how to take it to you know a, another level, you know, and adapt to the current situation, and like you flow it, and 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 it's the same thing with jujitsu the, the jujitsu teacher might teach you a way to get out of that mount position and you start going for the elbow escape but also you're tired you're going for it and the, now the guy has a defense to that elbow escape now what do you do you know now you have to learn how to you know you have mm-hmm. to learn how to put it all together you know there's the elbow escape the other way you know you, there's just you know you you know try to buck him you know create weight you know move his weight around to to open to open up things and so there's just lots of different directions that you go it's not always just one answer uh that's going to get you home you hit it on the head like if if i could get those words into the my agents heads that are on my team i would love it and and a bigger degree kind of like all of the country of america is this is just my perspective on it i feel like we live in the easiest time to be a human that has ever existed on the planet. I mean, if you just think about how much time do I ever wonder about where I'm going to find food or where I'm going to find water, like every need that even, even homeless people here are obese. And I'm not trying to say that it's not hard to be a homeless person. I'm just saying compared to the rest of the time, the world has been spinning almost everything we ever have is taken care of for us. We don't worry about another tribe coming in and raping our women and killing us. We worry about a, a, a passive aggressive comment that the person three cubicles down might've made, or that we didn't get included in an email that we think we should have. Okay. Like comparatively speaking, these are small problems. <laughs> yeah. And so when you're in an environment that as with this much abundance, it's easy to start to think every solution should be easy, right? Like you just have this sense of entitlement that an elbow escape should be all I need. Why do I have to also learn a trap and roll? I mean, I have to pick between which one I'm going to use. This is ridiculous. Like you get into that mindset that what you described as flow is asking too much. Like I should just be able to tell this client, this client, Hey, I'm your agent. Let's go find a house and just write an offer. And when I'm, when I'm explaining to them, that person has a bazillion feelings that are going on. They're super excited and they're super scared. And their mom is telling them, don't ever buy real estate, but their neighbor did well. And they don't know what to think about this whole thing. You sort of have to be that base that they can like orbit around until they're finally ready to land. And you got to flow with these people. You have to listen to their fears and understand if they actually need information or if they just need to be understood. And that's what successful people do is like, they flow with what life is throwing them. And really when you're practicing mixed martial arts, you're, it's, you're not learning a technique. There's not a five finger death punch that you just use and it will win every single fight. It is 
it, based on what's being thrown at me and what I know, how do I make the right decision? And like I was saying earlier, that's really where life is the most fun for me. When I'm in that form of like conflict or combat, whatever you want to call it, there's a person on the other side that doesn't want this thing or wants it, but isn't willing to let themselves, or I'm competing in a sport. It's having to figure out what is the best move to make right now that keeps you engaged, that makes life fun. And so many people miss out from that when they're always looking for the easy answer. We see that in the world of real estate all the time. Like, well, just tell me which house to buy and where to find it. I don't want to have to learn how this whole thing works. And and they never succeed because they're looking for this one-stop answer that doesn't exist. Yeah. And going back to the whole failure thing, I think that's another huge part of it is that they're afraid of failure. You know, when you're doing jujitsu and you're going for those elbow escapes, like some people just will hold on and not even try because they know if they go for it, it might be stopped instead of being not being afraid and learning, okay, wait, I didn't get it this time, but this is why. And now I'm going to, you know, work the other side. Just, just knowing that what, you know, when you're that realtor, like you're going to fail multiple times, you're going to have awkward you know, conversations that don't go well. And all this is just learning experience. So go in there with the most confidence you possibly can and prep the best you possibly can. And just know that you're going to have to constantly, it's a constant learning experience. Yeah. And that you, you need to be okay with failure. So we interviewed here on Gracie on our podcast, bigger pockets. And one of the things he told me, cause I was just starting to roll is he's like, if you have any hesitation about being tapped, just don't. It does not matter. You don't lose if you get tapped. You're not in a competition. What you need to have is a fascination with how someone tapped you. And you really you need to be very curious about why that worked. And you'll learn a lot faster. So he told me that every single new student that comes to he and his brother's academy asks the same two questions. How do I tap someone? And how do I escape? That's all that people are asking. He's like, I don't even like for you to ask that question. Just ask like, how did that person escape what I did? Where did they shift their weight? What did they do? And I thought that is such good advice for life in general. Like go to open houses. And if you don't get any leads, ask yourself, why did I not? Because I could go to that open house and I would do and I watch them and they sit there at the counter and they wait for the person who walks in the house to walk up to them and say, hey, will you be my agent? I really need one. There's not a human being alive that's going to do that. You have to create a hunger in them to want to work with you. And I think that probably works when it comes to relationships. Like someone's not just going to fall in love with you. You got to go give them a reason to do that. You have to give them a reason to have the feelings that you're looking to get. When it comes to your job, your boss isn't going to just say, I really got to dump this promotion on somebody and I got to get it off my chest. Boom. Will you take it? You got to prove to them why you deserve that promotion and why you should be there. And you can't ever do that if you're living in fear of failure. And that's why, like, I love how you mentioned that especially the fact it came up at church because it's such a deep spiritual issue. I think so many people, and this is me included, are afraid of failure because we interpret it like this is an indication that I am not enough. Mm. And that is exactly why going to jiu-jitsu is freaking hard because I'm told the entire time I'm there, I'm not enough. That's the message I'm getting the entire time is I'm not as good as these. There's like a 16-year-old in our in our academy that's been going since he was eight and he just rips through grown men like a knife through butter it is insane he'll tap someone in a five minute period like five or six times like blue belts that have been they're not like new people and he just rips through them and it's because he's done it for so long and he's already gone through all those failures so i the battle in my head is constantly telling myself it is okay that i'm being told i'm not enough that is what will make me get better when I lived in the world where I was the black belt of that world, I never had to feel like I wasn't enough and I'm not being pushed. And so I'm not getting the most out of myself. And I guess 
I would just highly encourage people to think about when you are afraid of whatever the undertaking might be, ask yourself if you're interpreting that fear as I'm not enough or I'll never get back what I lost. And if so, is that a healthy state of being to sustain? Yeah. I, I start thinking about, uh, also when we're talking like this, um, just how you have to enjoy the, the journey, you know, there's, People are so fixated on the end goal. They see what David Green has done. That's what they want, you know, and and they want it quick, you know. So, you know, they have a couple of failures and it's it's just traumatizing them. But if they figure out a way to be consistent and make it a lifestyle, you know, like this is this is what they're obsessed with and this is what they're gonna be great at every single day and enjoy every bit of it. Because no matter once you finally once I became the world champion. You know, that was the goal for the longest time. I become the world champion. I look in the mirror. I'm still Chris Wyman. Nothing has changed. And that could be a depressing thing. If you're mm-hmm. not, if you're not enjoying the whole journey, because at the end of the day, that's not gonna really change you like you might think. That end goal isn't gonna, you know, make you the happiest person on the planet. Every single day that happiness has to be infused into your into your day, into your lifestyle. Yeah, you're still stuck with you. That's something I, I think about a lot. Like the one constant in my life, no matter what I'm doing, is I'm always there. So going to it, like I own a couple properties in Maui now. I can go to Hawaii anytime I want, and stay in one of the best parts of it. But if I don't like myself, if I'm not happy with what I'm doing in life, or if I'm making decisions outside of my own values, I could be in the most beautiful place on earth and I'll be miserable. I just, yeah. it's, I had take me everywhere I go. And that's a great point you said. So much of our goals are about, uh, accumulating something or accomplishing something in the outside world, right? Being the champion of the world that you hit, man, I'm better than everybody else who does what I do at this given period of time, but it has nothing to do with the battle that Chris is fighting with Chris, <laughs> yeah. with whatever, whatever selfishness or narcissism or doubt or whatever our issues are like, those are spiritual matters and you cannot impact those by, uh, things that happen in this physical world. And so, absolutely. and, and I think I'm glad you're bringing it up because Many people who haven't hit the pinnacle of whatever their goal is don't realize that when they get there, it can actually be massively depressing because you subconsciously thought that was the magic pill that was going to make everything better. Absolutely. Nailed that on the head. Um, you have a super inspiring and fascinating story. The fact that you came, you, you were a cop, uh, you know, a blue collar guy. Everybody knows what cops make. It's kind of set in stone and it's really living for the pension. And at some point decided to get into real estate and getting into business can you go through that transition um, and you know what, what that was all like for you? So it started a little before I was a cop. I, was, I went to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just went to the cheapest college I could find because I had a lot of anxiety at that time in my life. Like I couldn't pick a career. And I'm a person who likes to just like get things done quick. So it was really frustrating that I wasn't sure what race I wanted to run because I felt like all the other runners were getting ahead of me while, before I could even start. Yeah, yeah. So I worked at restaurants and I worked at really nice restaurants and my athletic career in high school didn't turn out like what I thought it was. I uh, started really well at basketball and then we got a new coach. So when I was a sophomore, I got asked to play with the varsity team. And then my senior year, we our coach we had was replaced with another one who was a great basketball coach, but he did not like my game. He wa- I was a small forward. He wanted me to play as like a center. And you wouldn't know if I'm looking at me now, but I was 145 pounds, six feet tall. I was not strong. And I would just really? get manhandled. What grade there. were you in again? This was like 12th grade. 12th grade. 
So I had a horrible experience my senior year. I hardly played at all. I thought I was going to go play at like a junior college and uh, then move on to hopefully like I never would have played division one. I just wasn't athletic enough for that. But I had a very good mind for basketball and I, and I practiced it a lot. So I was kind of crushed emotionally coming out of high school. My confidence had taken a huge hit. It was one of those things where I wanted to go this way and God said, no, that's not the plan. But I didn't interpret it like, yes, God has a plan. I interpreted it like I'm not good enough. I suck at life, right? The girl that I really liked didn't like me back. I, I had a bad relationship with my dad, so I already had low confidence. And I was just like really struggling to just want to get out of bed every day. Didn't feel very good about myself. So the one thing that I could control was how much money I made and saved. So I got into the restaurant industry and I was working at really nice steakhouses and I just through myself to try to like numb that pain of not being enough. Well, now in this restaurant world, this is freaking easy compared to what basketball was like. You know, I'm not competing with anyone but me. So I got really good at waiting tables at nice restaurants and I made quite a bit of money. When I graduated college, I had my car paid for, my school paid for, and a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Damn. And that just from from saving money. So that was kind of what I cling to during that period of intense doubt. I read the book for the first time, Wild at Heart. Have you ever read that John Eldridge book? No. Very good book. Mike Chandler is also a fan of it. Just kind of speaks to like a man's heart and and how we become men that masculinity is something that has to be passed on from one man to another. And if you don't have a good relationship with your dad, you don't have father figures in your life, you're going to have inherent doubt about your ability to make it in the world that other people don't. So I get into law enforcement. I've got this money in the bank and I start working a little bit of overtime and the, the housing market crashes. And I didn't plan for that. I had no idea it was going to. I was just watching prices in 2005, 2006, thinking that's just like, how could anyone ever afford a house when this is how much they cost? So when they crashed, I just bought my first house because my buddy was going to move to Bible school and he was going to lose his deposit. And I just didn't want him to lose his down payment. I thought, well, I'll need a house at some point. I'll probably have a family get married. I'll just rent it out till then. It was that innocent. I had no plans of becoming a real estate uh, investor. And then I had the money saved up. So I put $50,000 down on the house. And then next year, another one came up. And so I put another 50,000 on that one. And then the third year after that, my grandma passed away. And instead of selling the house on the market, I just bought it and gave the money to the family. And at that point, my identity kind of shifted into, I guess I'm a real estate investor. I'm a person who buys houses. I did not know about bigger pockets. There weren't resources. I didn't have a mentor. I just fell into it bass backwards. And once that happened, I realized I need to make money to put down payments on houses. And I shifted from uh, trying to be cop of the year to trying to work as much overtime as I could and saving that money to buy more properties. Now, I got very lucky in hindsight because the culture towards police was becoming so toxic at the same time I made that switch that it made it easier for me, right? Like my first couple of years in law enforcement, I loved it. And I wouldn't have wanted to shift my focus to just making money. It was more about excelling at what my craft was. Well, it, in the Bay Area, it became so apparent so quickly. They did not want us around. We were a necessary evil at best that it gave me sort of a morale boost to be able to make money and invest in real estate. So I just kind of committed my life at that point to saving as much as I could. I would work 100 hours a week. I would sleep in my car a couple of times a week and get two or three hours of sleep, then go back into work 20-hour shifts. Um, it was, it found, it was a new way that I could push myself that I was missing because I wasn't in sports anymore. I didn't have that like athletic mm. edge that I wanted. So I ended up with about eight or nine houses working as a police officer. And then the next thing kind of hit me that I'm going to be doing this for like 30 years. I'm going to die before I make it. I, it's, this is horribly unhealthy to try to live this way. You're eating fast food and food from restaurants every single day. And you're just 
sucking on caffeine to try to stay awake and not getting any sleep. Were so, you, I'm sorry to cut you off, but were you no. managing these houses at the same time or like were you doing everything or did you have a management company? I had property management for the different areas that I had houses in. So I had houses in a couple of different states. But so I it was all long distance managers. from day one? No, the first couple were in California. I had four houses in California. Then I bought maybe four or five in Arizona. And then I started to get into Florida. Okay. And so I, I would, uh, I was managing the managers, but it still wasn't, wasn't that much to it. They were single family homes. It was, it was pretty simple. It was mostly just answering emails. Do you want to fix this thing or not? And I realized I can't keep working six months to save a down payment of one house. This is just way too slow and it's killing me. And so I got into the Burr method. That's the buy, rehab, rent, finance, repeat. This one, one of the only right books here. I read was your book before we <laughs> I met. I appreciate that. I could, I don't know how that happened, but Which, you, is you that, got me to read your book. Your son that just walked in, I believe, was that him in the picture that you sent me when you were reading it? Probably, yeah. It's one of your yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. So that allowed me to go from, instead of saving the down payment of six months, I could buy a house, I would just buy it cash and then fix it up and then refinance it, get that capital back, and I could buy another house. And after a year of doing that, I had accumulative capital that I was buying two houses a month. I would just buy two, fix them up, pull the money out about three months later, and then I had more capital coming in. I could buy the next two next month. So that's really where I ramped up my investing, and that's kind of where I dialed in my skills as a real estate investor. That's another thing you mentioned it earlier, you don't get good at doing anything one time. So if you're buying one house every three years, you'll build wealth, but you won't get good at investing. You won't be good at anything that you do once every three years. So I started to pick up this rhythm and develop these systems and recognize opportunities and, and really get good at knowing what were the contractors and the managers that I wanted actually managing the properties who was good at it. That led to a book deal from Bigger Pockets uh, to write that book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing. Were you already then, doing the podcast at Bigger Pockets or no? No, I had been interviewed on the podcast. And then I took that opportunity when it was done to start writing blog articles for him. I figured out that everyone was writing half assed blog articles for that website. And the editor loved me because I would go to her and say, what can I do to make this better? What's the questions everyone asking? What kind of articles do you want? I was really the only person in that whole group that gave a crap about doing a good job. Everybody else just wanted the exposure. They wanted their name out there. Well, she liked my effort so much that when Bigger Pocket said, hey, we want to write, we want more books to be written by someone other than Brandon Turner. She said, well, you got to get David Green. He's the best one I have on the blog. So I got the the long distance real estate investing deal. Then after that, I, I went on like kind of a podcast tour to talk about that book. And I got the Burr book deal. I wrote the, the book on the Burr. Then I got back on the podcast for like a third time. And I had become a pretty good speaker. Like you're saying, I forced myself to do a lot of that public speaking. When I would go on other people's podcasts, I would go speak at meetups. I would I would really spend a lot of time thinking about how am I going to explain this in a, in a succinct way so I can keep people's attention and get my point across. Very similar like jujitsu. How do I spend way less energy than it would be just to go to goon out on this thing? Yeah. And so when the owner of Bigger Pockets, Josh Dorkin, he took some time away to go focus on family. There was an opening. They tried a couple uh, hosts. None of them really worked out. Brandon got me in there. He and I had really good chemistry because we'd become friends over the years. And that's how I took over as the podcast host. Wow. Um it was now, and throughout this whole process, you started with the single family homes and then eventually you started moving into multifamily units? Well, I did single family homes and I started burying single family homes. So when I, when, I, when I took over as the podcast host, it was right around the same time that I left law enforcement to become a real estate agent. Maybe there was like a year in between. So I was trying to learn sales and through Keller Williams, which has really good training. 
I had replaced my police income with income from selling homes and I was continuing to buy houses. Along the way, I would hit financing problems. So I would get too many loans and I couldn't find another loan to buy a house. Or I had one issue, man, this was really bad. I had like probably 25 houses at the time and they were all direct withdrawing from bank accounts for the HOAs, the utilities, the water, the mortgages. And somebody, we fell prey to a phishing scam where my assistant put my bank information into an email that came in that wasn't a real bank. So someone tried to drain all the cash out. I got very lucky that the bank stopped the money from going out, but I had to shut down five checking accounts and open up five new ones. And I couldn't keep up with the freaking, like all of the different withdrawals that were being made. This was at the same time my business was really picking up and I was trying to train my first assistant. So I started getting sent to collections for like $200 HOA fees not being paid and utility bills of 150 bucks was horrible. So my credit would get slammed by this ridiculous stuff and I couldn't buy. So during those periods of time, I couldn't buy single families. I would invest in these multifamily syndications with other investor friends that I had met and those did really well. And then eventually I got enough single family homes that I really didn't want more. It was just like a headache to try to manage all of them. So I shifted into to building the real estate team up. We're now one of the top teams in Keller Williams. We're in the top 100 in the company of 170,000 agents. So that's pretty cool. I started a mortgage company. So now we do all the loans for our clients that are buying a house as well as we help other people that want to buy investment property. We do their loans. And now I've sort of diversified. Like you said, I buy some vacation rentals. I've got those ones in Hawaii. Um, I bought a property last year in Minnesota. That was a really the big, the most expensive property I bought. It was $16 million. And it's like a triple net type of a property in an area outside of Minneapolis where I, I'm my bet is a lot of people in the city of Minneapolis are going to be migrating away as more protests are happening and more riots are happening inside the city. And then I just bought one in a in a area in Northern California, the East Bay area called Pleasant Hill. That's a really nice area. I bought a, a really big property, almost 5,000 square feet. And we're sort of splitting that into separate units that can be rented out individually. And I'll be spending probably more of my time getting into corporate housing and short-term rentals in really, really nice neighborhoods instead of what I was doing, which was just winning by volume. Wow. You pretty much got real estate cornered with every business. Um, I have a management company. Do you have a management company you started? That, not yet because that's <laughs> management's like the lymph node of real estate investing. I always say <laughs> that is the hardest job yeah. of all, right? Um, so that I, when I come across the right partner that's good at doing it, but is just exhausted from trying to keep up with it, that's either I'll partner with them or buy their company and figure out a way to take some of the load off of what they're doing because there is a lot of value in having one of those. But the next, the next move for this year is my partner in the mortgage company. We're starting an insurance company so we can do insurance for all the people that are buying properties. And um, after that, it well, we're getting also licensed in all 50 states. So we should be able to do loans for everybody across the country. If you're a person who wants to get into real estate investing and you don't know where to start, we'll be that company you can go to that will get you pre-approved and connect you with the agents that we have. Then after that, it will be putting David Green teams in different cities where we see a lot of investors are buying properties or or people in the country are moving to so that we can try to take the system that I built here in Northern California and expand that into different places. Man. Wow, you got you got a you got some vision. Is for retirement purposes when you when you're all said and done, is it triple net leases? Is that how you kind of want to finish it off and just you know have all this money coming to you at a low interest rate, but it's tons of it? And here's what's tricky about that. That was the plan. So so that is the best way is you eventually end up in triple net where your return might be a little bit lower, but your headache is almost nothing. It's, it's very very small. 
the problem is what our federal government is doing at this point to get us out of the mess that we've part of it's what we made and part of it what was imposed on us with the shelter in place and COVID and shutting the country down. Yeah. Is they're just printing money every single time there's a problem. At this stage, there's no politician that wants to be the one that says, all right, we got to raise taxes to pay off the debt. We have to restrict the money supply. We're going to go through 20 years of lean time so that we can get our balance back in order like it needs to be. No one votes for that person. They're all saying the same thing. We're going to print more money. We're going to create more social programs. We're going to stimulate the economy, stimulate the economy. The, the country has a body that needs to sleep. It needs to let itself rest and sort of like let all the cells that need to be wiped out, get wiped out and new ones come in place, repair all of the um, your tissue that's been damaged, right? Like some of these businesses are in place. It does, no one likes to hear this, but they need to fail and they need to be replaced by better businesses. That's just the rhythm of how life works, right? Nobody stays the champion of the world forever. Mm-hmm. They age out and new people have to, can you imagine what the UFC would look like if they just said, we're not going to let this person not be champion anymore. Like they're yeah. just going to stay there regardless of how they perform. Everyone yep. would stop. Well, that's what the country's kind of doing. We're just, just keep giving them PEDs. Keep giving them PEDs. That's it. They're shooting meth into dies. the body. There, yeah. you got it hundred percent, Chris. Like they need to let us sleep. They won't. They keep shooting methamphetamine. So we're like, we feel great. Unemployment's low. There's <laughs> the interest rates are low. Yes, I can take on the world, but it's because uh, you're full of meth, and eventually that body will die. That's exactly right, and oh, that's what great. scares me about what we see happening. Because if you're the president that says, "Hey guys, we need to go to rehab and get off this meth," no one's voting for you. They're voting for the one that's going to keep the party going. So your question was like, is triple net the answer? Unfortunately, like I thought I was going to be retired and just not working anymore. And the properties I already bought were going to continue to support me. But we're seeing so much inflation that like that doesn't really work. When when they're pumping this much money in the economy and everything's costing more, you kind of have to get back in the game and keep playing it. Like I can't step off of that treadmill. So I have to be way more aggressive. That's why I'm still building companies and I'm buying short-term rentals in some of the best areas because the price of these assets is they're inflating at an incredible rate. They should not be going up as much as they are. There's a lot of people who they feel wealthier than they really are. They think they have more than they do because everything they bought has gone up in value and they take the credit and say, oh, I'm so great. I know I'm not great. I went and bought two properties in Maui uh, earlier this year because I saw that travel had been restricted and it was very hard to get into Maui. So these people that own these short-term rentals were hurting. They weren't able to book them. So I was finding properties that had been on the market for 200 days, 300 days, and nobody was buying them. And I went after uh, probably 12 properties pretty hard. I ended up getting two. And right around the time I got them in contract, Hawaii sort of opened up their travel ban at the same time that a lot of Americans realized like this just isn't going away. I got to yeah. take my vacation because it's not going to stop. So I put them under contract and it, it just happened to be that during that period of time that I had them locked up, uh, people started traveling to Hawaii again, revenue started flowing in. So all those houses got either pulled off the market or somebody else bought them and they appreciated over a hundred thousand dollars while they were in escrow. And since wow. then, they've gone up another 200 after that. Like that is not David being the smartest investor ever. Like that yeah. should not, it's, it's steroids, right? The only reason that human being is performing that way is because they're on PEDs, just like you said. So what is your thoughts? How do we, how do we handle this? Like if you're, it's an unprecedented situation for sure yes. with the bailouts and everything. Like this is, I don't think it's happened on this level ever. I'm uh, more afraid of what I don't buy than buying something and having it go wrong. 
I think that's the first thing you have to recognize. So the, the, the analogy I always give is the NFL when you're younger than me. How old are you, Chris? Um, no, I'm 37. Okay. So we're very close. I'm 38. Yeah. When we were kids, you won in the NFL by having a strong running game and a great defense. And you just grinded the other team down. And by the fourth quarter, their defense was tired. And you know, your Jerome Bettis was knocking them over. And that was kind of the, every once in a while you would, you would take a big shot passing the ball, but it was too risky to do it very frequently. Mm-hmm. Well, they changed the rules in the NFL. They don't let you touch the wide receivers. They don't let you touch the quarterback at all. That it's uh, the offense got all the benefit from every rule. Like you have all these defenseless hits. So now mm. offenses can take a lot more risk and it actually isn't as risky. If that makes sense, the yeah. game changed because the rules changed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you're playing conservative football, you lose every time. That that's the problem. The old way that we were all trained to handle money. Don't get in debt. Be very careful. Analyze everything a hundred times before you make a decision. That's the guys that are getting two to three yards on a run and then they're ending up on like, you know, third and four and they can't pick up a first down. It just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. My my fear is that people aren't adapting to that. They're not recognizing that the government is printing so much stinking money that you have to be buying assets at this point. It's not like But a even secret. at the prices that they're at, like it, it you know there you know it's not normal. You know there's gonna be a crash. So you like right? I would I, if you're on the same page as me, I feel like there is no, this is not real. Like you said, there's steroids being injected into these dudes. Okay. How, yeah. So I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy this house at 700, even though I know it's 500, really around 500. Does here's that, where, here's where I, this is just my opinion. I could be totally wrong on this. I don't yeah. know. Really, you're forced to make a bet one way or the other. So mm-hmm. by not buying, you're making a bet. By buying, you're making a bet. Okay. Yeah. My take is that what you think in your head $500,000 is, is now actually $700,000. Just inflation. The, the baseline of how money works has increased like carbon monoxide. And we don't realize it because we've got it in our mind. Inflation takes it two to 3%. So like maybe 500 could be worth 550. I can accept that, but 700, it feels way off. But that's like, if you went back to someone in the NFL 40 years ago, and you said, Games are going to be like this team scores 36 points a game. They'd say that's unsustainable. They can do that once, maybe twice. They can never do that through a season. But the rules that they were playing the game in made that make sense. It's different rules now. And that's my fear. So you hear everyone talk about having a crash. And this is hard for me because I'm in this spot on the podcast where a lot of people look up to me for advice. And so I, I really have to pay as much attention as I can. The reason like in 2010, just you as a lay person, how would you have known that we were in a recession and that real estate was losing value? Because it already had a recession, right? Well, let's, I don't know. well, let's, when the market crashed, how did you know? People couldn't get loans anymore. The news told you. Is that Okay. Why? So what was the news basing their information off of? Stock that? market? No, like the real estate market. Real estate market. Like, how would you even know that the real estate market was losing value? People were foreclosing on their homes, right? Okay. Yeah. So people were foreclosing on their homes, but the new houses that were being sold were not being sold for as much, right? It was as simple as when you looked at what the home value of something was, it was less. There was a red arrow on Zillow that was pointing down. You were were kind of overthinking my question, but it was that simple, right? I want to get it right. (laughs) And when the market's going good, we know because there's a green arrow that's pointing up. That's basically the barometer we use. Here's what I think is happening right now. There's a green arrow that's pointing up that says your home went up 4% and you interpret that as I winning. 
it's going well. But if inflation is at 10% and your home's going up by 4%, you could be in a crash and not feel it. And mm. that's what's scary is that your house may be increasing in value, but it's not keeping up with what the tide is doing. And so in certain areas, your home is losing value, but it's like carbon monoxide. You don't feel it until it hits you when it's too late. So that's part of what makes this tricky is that maybe that house, like you said, should only be worth 500, but that's at what you understand $500,000 to be. And I think inflation is ripping through at such incredible amounts. Like I probably can't say enough how bad it is. If you just look at the US monetary supply on a graph, you'll see from the time the country was created until like 2010, the money supply was mostly the same. It just kept going. It went up a tiny bit, right? And in 2010, it did this. It just spiked incredible. And since then, it's almost going straight up. Like You, you can't really keep track of how much currency is being put into the system at the same time that they're not building more properties. They're they're not keeping up with the supply that is needed. The, the regulation on home builders is really strict and they're not building new homes. And then you take wealthy people that are seeing their taxes that keep getting bumped up and they need a place to put that money. They got to find somewhere and real estate has a lot of tax advantages and you can also leverage it really easily. So hedge funds, venture capitalists, really big players that typically never were involved in our real estate space, they would make their money through stock trading and, and options and insurance sales and stuff like that. They're all getting into our world now and it's creating this feeding frenzy that everybody wants to own real estate because and I didn't mention this with interest rates being kept as low as they are, you don't get any money for any return on your money in the bank. Right. When I was in, in like college, I could get six or 7% on a savings account. Yeah. Well, when that goes to zero, you start to feel desperate. You got to put your money somewhere. You're going to put it into real estate. So, you know, the question now, I don't. Happens, yeah. That, go then you got oversupply, right? Oversupply. I saw, I, I, it was good. This is, that's why I'm jumping in on you because I, I meant to ask you this question too. And you kind of just jumped, you went right into it. Um, I seen something where by 2024, based on the amount of permits that they've seen being uh, put in uh, for building, that there's going to be an oversupply of rental uh, um, houses and um, especially short-term rentals in particular. Do you? What, what's your thoughts on that? First off, I think that's needed. We need to have a little more healthy competition amongst real estate investors right now. I don't know, and this is fascinating to say, I don't know one person that's not making money in short-term rentals that owns them. There shouldn't be a 100% success rate in anything. Okay, So there is a huge demand for those and there's not enough property. So of course, money is flocking to that space because people are recognizing the returns that can be made. And there's this delay, like it's going to be two to three years before we build these properties. Well, if you're buying in an area where a lot of those builders are going to, and you own a short-term rental and you have a one-trick pony, there's a very good chance that you'll go from riding on the top of the world to you're competing with people who have nicer properties than you and you've got nothing. So it's something that could lead to some inventory coming back on the market. I don't think there'll be foreclosures because during that two to three periods of time, prices are likely to keep going up so high that even if you have to sell your house at a discount, it's still going to be more than what you paid for it. Do you, you think the it. rent is going to be able to stay with the incline in the house prices? I think it will because of inflation. I think you, that so just you, yeah. So you you're you're really banking on and you, you're thinking that this is really just inflation. It's not the housing market is going out of control. It's just a it, that's just like the simplest way to see inflation. Yes. Money is not worth what it was before. So when your rent goes from twelve hundred to fourteen or fifteen hundred, and you're like, yes, I'm crushing it. You might just be breaking even. 
because the money's worth a lot less. What's your thoughts? And this is going off completely onto a different subject, but metaverse. As a real estate guy, like the only thing that, like the, in history, real estate has been the strongest, uh, you know, piece of investment that you could that you could possibly have. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you got something called the metaverse, where people are buying real estate in this this metaverse, and I could see that this could potentially hurt legit, solid, you know, real estate investors. What's your What's your thoughts on that? The first thing is, I think most people expect me to say the metaverse is trash, Bitcoin is trash, real estate, you know. Tangible. I actually think the principles of owning real estate in the metaverse are almost the same as owning real estate here. It's all real estate. So if you have a place everyone is going, a metaverse, just like a city that they're all traveling to, and you own the area that they need in order to visit there, that's owning real estate. I think that several metaverses will spring up and there'll be a little bit of a war just like there was between Yahoo and Bing and Google and Ask Jeeves and all those search engines. And I don't know which one's going to win. That's why I'm really not betting in that space, but I I think that's what will happen. And whichever one of those metaverses end up being the dominant one, whoever owns the real estate in that space is going to become incredibly wealthy and everyone else is going to pay those people to be able to use that real estate. So if you are someone who understands that world, I would actually encourage you to invest in those spaces. I would say if you're not a person who understands that world, don't. There's a book called The Richest Man in Babylon. It's one of my favorite books that's ever been written. Have you read that one before? Yeah, I've read that. Yep. Love it, right? Yeah, one of the awesome. rules in there is don't invest in anything you don't understand. And uh I, I find myself frequently being so glad that I have that role in my life because I'm tempted to be like, oh, NFTs, people are doing really great. I should go buy one and see what happens. The minute you start saying, see what happens or hope it goes up, you know you're on that hopium and you don't want to be addicted to that. Like, Don't ever invest in something because you're hoping it will go well. I don't think you ever took a fight with somebody hoping that you would win. Like, You didn't have a game plan. You didn't know what you were getting into. You didn't know how to prepare for it. And you didn't believe that you could win. Right. Yeah. That's how investing should work. Cause you're not going to win every single time, but you should know if I lose, this is the way I'm going to lose. And you're walking into it with kind of eyes wide open. That's, that's inspiring for me to hear because I think with, I, I think I rely on other people's expertise a little bit too much where, you know, all right, I got, you know, I'm part of Vayner sports. So I got Gary V what he, you know, you know, I could call his brother AJ and I could ask him for advice. Like they've done all the research. Why do I have to do the research? But Again, it comes to then you're down to hoping that they were right, yes. and that's that's a that's an addictive drug, and it's probably the best way to fail. Yeah, <laughs> and, and feel Gary, terrible about it. Gary can probably fail many times and be fine, whereas someone else might, that doesn't have his wealth can't take that many losses. A hundred percent. You you could have a great record in UFC and take a, a fight that's kind of risky. And if you lose it, you're okay. But there's also stages in your career where if you lose your next fight, you might not be getting another fight, right? Absolutely. So not everyone's playing the same game. I like to tell people that all the time when they're like, well, what's Gary Vaynerchuk doing? I want to do that because he's the most successful. Gary has resources at his disposal that you don't have. That's probably not the person that you should be following. You should be following someone who's much closer to where you're at until you build up enough of a cushion that you can take some of those knockout swings and not have to worry about, you know, getting knocked out in return if you miss. Yeah. But I will, you know what, like I I do believe Gary in the fact that he doesn't start really talking about things until he does that research himself. So he's not doing the hopium thing either though. He's at least for him. You know, he's putting the time in before he starts, you know, 
going out of control and telling you know everybody how awesome this is and how it's going to be the future. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear him talk about NFTs now. He's super passionate about NFT, NFTs and he's getting a lot of people in there, but I do see he keeps, he keeps putting it out there. Guys, I'm, you know, this is 90, I don't know what he said, 97%, let's just say something like that is going to fail. So all those people yeah. that are throwing their money in that they got from the government into this, just let you know, you might have to work again soon. <laughs> so please yeah. be careful. There is a pattern, like here's how I see it in my mind. There's there's two points I'll make. The first is you have all these little cryptocurrencies that are kind of all going up in some degree, right? Yeah. Like there's a very wide base. Everybody's making money, so they all feel like they're wealthy. But what people don't realize is as they're gaining in value, they're also slowly all coming together as some of them drop off or two of them merge and become one thing. Like we saw there was all these different internet websites and it sort of emerges into there's a handful of them and the rest of them are bought up by the others, right? You see this with companies in the tech startup space, like they're all making money and then they start merging together and you end yeah. up with like one Google that just dominates everyone, okay? Yeah. You can be making money, making money, making money, going up, going up, going up, and then out of nowhere, boom, it's gone your company isn't worth anything or your Bitcoin isn't worth anything or whatever. So there's many people right now that are crushing it. And when, when people like me say, you should probably invest some of that money in real estate and not go hundred percent in the speculative stuff, they're thinking, dude, you don't know what you're talking about, right? I'm, I'm crushing it. Like, like a fighter who's incredibly athletic and they're just be winning on that alone. And someone's trying to teach them, like, you really need to get your technique down. Cause when you go against GSP, that's not going to work. <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah. you're just some old man. You can't do what I can do. So don't listen. Yeah. And I think that that makes me sad. I think that's going to happen to a lot of people. I'm not saying don't invest in crypto, but when you, when you hear people saying things like, man, Ethereum went up, or I really hope it goes up, or let's see what happened. Like They don't know what they're doing. They're in that hopium space. And so if you are making money in that way, that is great for you. Continue to learn, but don't like put all of your eggs in that basket. I have The second point I was going to make is I have a theory of how you take risk when you're building wealth. And it's like a, a pyramid model, right? At the base of that pyramid, the majority of your efforts should be in very non-risky things. So in my life, that would look like selling houses and doing loans. I can't, it's hard to lose money in that space. Like right? I have some like expenses like salaries and stuff, but I'm not putting big amounts of capital into a deal like people are when they're buying stocks or something like that. It can't really hurt me too much. And then one step up from that period, I have very sound investments that I'm injecting capital into, but they're not very likely to go bad. A building that I could put those teams into, for example. That would be, or or like the house I bought, I told you about in Pleasant Hill, it's going to become several units, right? It was almost a $2 million property. It was expensive, but the odds of that area ever going down in value or rents not going up are almost none. It's, a, yeah. it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a grand slam, but it's a very solid investment. And then I have another round like short-term rentals, right? Those could go bad, but they're still most likely to go well. And at the very top of that pyramid, that's where I'm taking my knockout swings. If I wanted to go just speculate into an NFT or into Bitcoin or into some development project in another country that might get shut down because the government changes laws, but it might be great. I'll still invest in those things, but it's proportional to how much I was able to build on my foundation. And I like that model because we're always tempted to get into these amazing deals, right? Like I'm just going to put my money in there, do no work, and it's going to explode. So if I want to chase that, it forces me to develop my foundation. For every time I want to focus on a really big win, I got to put my effort back into the fundamentals and making those even stronger. And I feel like that creates a healthy model that you, you can still take the big shots, but you're not risking losing everything if it doesn't work out.
This would be the last question. I appreciate you uh, doing this. Um, I feel like it's it, it's always confusing to people when they have when they hear someone like you who's super successful. Uh, you have all these different businesses uh, that you have to juggle. How do you prioritize your days? What is your, what is your days like? Like, can you give me like a little bit of a breakdown from a, if you have morning routines and then and then how do you how do you handle your days? So the first thing is you have to learn when when you get to that point what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And you got to be okay leveraging off your weaknesses and doubling down on your strengths. So I know that I'm not really organized. And if you make me um, focus on the logistics and the decision-making and the execution, I won't operate at a very high level. I need other people. What I say is like, I want to make the decision. I want to roll the bowling ball. This is the way we're going to go based on the data but I need someone else to line the pins up for me. So I'm the main decision maker in all these companies. I'm the CEO. Are we going to spend money on this or that? Are we going to hire these people? Or what direction are we going to take? But in order to do that, I got to train staff to bring options to me. Like this person wants to partner with you on whatever. They have to come and say, we've looked at the company's financials. This is what they're making. This is their staff. All the things that I need to make the decision. So a lot of my time is spent trying to develop the people that are around me to be able to help make me more successful. I need them to set up like my calendar. I don't do any of that. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing the next day until I before I go to bed at night, I look at it and I see what Krista has lined up for me to do. And you got to be okay giving some of that control away and okay investing in another human being to get them trained up and give them the opportunity to be able to do that for you. That's the first thing I would say. Mm. Another thing is that most human beings know they only have so much time in the day, but they don't take into account how much energy they have. And that's another thing that jujitsu has really helped me with because it wasn't when I, when I told you I was first rolling, it was exhausting. It wasn't my cardio. Like I thought it was that my whole effing body was so tense with everything I was doing that like 45 seconds of that. And I'd burned up everything I had when I yeah. learned to only activate the muscle I needed at that time, a five minute roll started to become like, way easier than a 30 second roll was in the beginning. So I am now very cognizant of where I'm spending energy. If I catch myself caught up in something that's taken a lot of my energy and I know that there's not that much juice in this, I just immediately shut it down. Right. Like, yeah, I'm like trying to squeeze a choke on someone with everything you have and it's not there and you gash yourself out and then you're playing defense at the time. So yeah. I encourage people now to know, like we have this phrase, follow your fire at bigger pockets. What juices you up? What gets you excited? What is your game? Like, you know, I watched you enough times, you know how to take somebody down, get on top and dominate them. That's the way that you're going to win more fights. Yeah. And the stand up stuff you're doing is usually going to be to set yourself up so that you can do what you know you're good at. A lot of people don't even know what they're good at. They're just copying what Gary V does or what someone else does in that space. And so I try very hard to spend the majority of my effort on the things that keep me energized. Like, I like this. I like talking to you. We got into some really deep stuff that is going to give me a lot of energy. I don't like sitting down and looking at an Excel spreadsheet for an hour and a half at a time, right? The times where I do have to do that, because sometimes it comes up, like I write books, I host meetings, I talk to people, I solve problems, I make decisions, I, I lead generate. There's a lot of different things I do. I haven't heard anyone else talk about this, but I think that there's a lot of value in it. I, I try to split up the form of energy I'm using throughout the day. So I'm not burning the same muscle all the time. If I start my day off writing a book, I'll write for like an hour. And I'm like, I just don't want to stare at this computer screen anymore. I need to talk to a person. Mm 
I'll have it set up. So then I'll have a 30 minute meeting with one of my employees and we'll just talk about them, what they got going on. And maybe I do two of those and then it's okay. I've had enough of listening to other people. I'm going to get in my emails and see what opportunities are coming up. And then when the emails are done, maybe at that point, I have a Zoom call where I'm giving instructions to other people. And then I move on to looking at the website we're developing and sending out instructions to them, telling them what to do. It's kind of like when I'm at the gym, it's sort of like working out different muscle groups is how I see it. I can't work out my biceps for an hour and a half. It won't work. But if I split it up with my quads and my calves and my chest and my back, you can stay in that gym for a really long time with enough energy, as long as you diversify the way that you're using your focus. So maybe at some point I could write a book on that topic. It's very interesting, but that's one of the ways I've found that people say, how do you keep up with it all? They're probably working the same muscle every single day. They're sitting in a cubicle, looking at analytics or managing projects and just being frustrated for like nine hours in a row. And then they're completely exhausted when they're done. And they say, how do you have the energy? But if they mixed it up between meetings and phone calls and reflection and thinking through problems and then executing on other things, you have a lot more energy to go around when you sort of spread it out that way. Yeah. I think that I think that's really well put. Um, you said you weren't very good at organization, but it seems like that all takes a lot of organizing in order to to do, and then to also to start a company from the get go to screen people, you know, to you know have the right people working for you to help you with the things that you're not as good at. That takes a lot of organization and a lot of like energy. Was that something that you really had to push yourself to be better at for those occasions to just get the businesses on its feet? I was horrible at that. That yeah. I mean, it took me like four to five years of just sucking before I finally was able to figure out what I told you. That was my white belt phase gotcha. <laughs> where yeah. you were just getting, you were leaving exhausted and you didn't even know why. Right. Yeah. And then it was, someone came along and told me like, dude, you're in fight mode the whole time. I'm like, well, yeah, we're in a fight. Like if you're a cop and you lose a fight, you lose your life. Like I was trying to end fights in seven seconds if I could, before yeah. it could get bad. And he's like, no, that's not, this is a chess match. And you got to like strategically know when to use what resources and then yeah. click like, oh, this is like a business where I have so much capital and what decisions I make to invest that capital will determine how well that business does. If you make a couple of bad decisions, you run out of money. It's like running out of energy in a match. Like it's a matter of time before I'm tapped if I'm just too tired to defend myself. So that's like to what you said. That's why you got to stick with stuff because there's you can't, no one can teach you all this before you get started. You can't avoid that learning phase. You have to survive and get through that. And now I recognize these patterns. Like that's another thing Gary Vee is very good at teaching is pattern recognition. He's figured out certain areas. He knows what to expect before it ever happens because he recognizes human behavior, human psychology, business cycles. When it comes to real estate, like you said, I've got that figured out. I just spent so much time in it. It's like you in a fight. Okay. Like if you had to go learn shoot boxing, yeah. You would learn it a lot quicker than a person that had no martial arts background at all, even yeah. though it's a new thing, right? Like you mm-hmm. recognize the patterns of how body moves and how combat works. Um, that's why you got to, like you said earlier, fall in love with the process of becoming excellent because you, you're going to spend a lot of time there trying to figure that stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. You're in, the, you're in a training camp right now. Your, your life is a training camp of real estate. <laughs> yes, that's a good way. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. So, you know, the, the cool thing about kind of where I am now is I'm able to get to a point where I can help other people to do the same thing. Um, yeah, you I'm started like, a mastermind class, yep. right? Yeah. So yeah. they can learn about that at davidgreenmastermind.com where I bring in different investors, different people that have done well at wealth building. And they talk about, I think we actually had Sterling come speak to that for a period of time, just about the mindset of what it takes to do the kind of stuff that you guys do and how people can incorporate that. 
into their lives. Awesome. And um, the ability to kind of like do deals with other people now and build relationships that are not just in real estate is is a man that's been needed for a long time. Getting into jujitsu and meeting people that are within that community, like Nick Lamagna, that guy's been very, very cool. He actually paid for a private lesson for me at the academy that I go to. Very, very sweet guy. Yeah, he's the man. He's the man. Hey, David Green, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for doing this. It was it was awesome talking to you. Hopefully we do this some other time. My pleasure. Anytime you want, I'd be happy to. And if you ever have any, you know, podcast hurdles that you're trying to help get over, let me know. I'd be happy to do whatever I can to help. I appreciate that. Is there anything you want to shout out before you head out? Uh, people can follow me at David Green 24. There's a E at the end of green. That's pretty much all on social media. And uh, if you're looking to buy real estate, let us know. We'd love to get you a loan to get you started. Or if you live in California, the, the David Green team, we host meetups that usually like 15, 20 bucks to go to. They're not that much. Just so we can pay for the venue where we teach people how to invest in real estate. You know, really, I'm kind of moving more out of just investing in real estate and just teaching people how to manage money. Mm. how to make more of it and how to save more of what you made. I think that's a huge component to wealth building that people try to skip. And that's why they're jumping into the NFT space or the Bitcoin space, because they're trying to figure out how do I get rich without building up any fundamentals or any discipline? And it doesn't work. It's just like yeah. trying to get in great shape without getting your diet under control. You can work out every single day. It doesn't matter if, you're, if your diet's poor. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, buddy. I appreciate it, man. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Chris. Yep. Take care, buddy. All right, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast with David Green. Uh, what an awesome dude. Uh, I really I really enjoyed listening to his mindset in order for him to become successful in business and how it correlates over to jiu-jitsu and how it correlates over to really all walks of life. Um, he really he really had some gems in there um, that he was spewing, and uh, I'm hoping we'll probably have those clipped for you guys to, to see. Remember, if you guys want to hear more conversations like this one I just had with David Green, all you have to do is click that follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do your listening. Every podcast is also available on my YouTube channel. So if you haven't subscribed yet, let's go. I'll be back next week with another great guest. But until then, I'm Chris Wyman, and this is Won't Back Down. Thanks for listening.